watching my fellow Americans with your host Spike Cohen yes welcome thank you oh thank you so much thanks for tuning in oh please oh thank you so much keep clapping clap for the miracle How would we know that you wanted the miracle if you didn't keep clapping? Welcome to My Fellow Americans. I am literally Spike Cohen. I am so happy to have you uh, here with me tonight, and uh, I cannot wait for this episode. Uh, I do have some uh, somber news to start this uh, episode before we get started. Uh, Jay Inslee has dropped out uh, of the race for the Democratic nomination for president. I know everyone here is devastated. I know I am. And um, he will be missed. Jay Inslee. In related news, Jay Inslee was previously running for president. Did not know that. but So he is out. Jay Inslee is out. This is a Muddied Waters Media production. Check us out on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram. Check us out on Anchor, Twitter, Periscope, Float. We're on Float, F-L-O-T. Te dot app. Check us out there. We're on all the different podcast things: iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud. We're everywhere. Check us out everywhere. Like us everywhere. Follow us everywhere. Five star us everywhere. Unless it's the maximum is ten stars, then ten star us in those places. Hit the bell if applicable. Some of these things have bells. Be sure to hit the bell if there is a a, a bell. Share this right now. Ten p.m. at night. Share it right now. The last thing I want is for one of your closest friends or loved ones to miss out on a roughly hour-ish long libertarian podcast on a Wednesday evening. Be sure to share it right now. Give the gift of Spike Cohen today. Kids love it. This program is brought to you by Anchor FM. I will be plugging that later, roughly halfway through this program, probably at a very inappropriate moment. The intro and outro music to this and every episode of My Fellow Americans comes from the amazing and talented Mr. Joe Davi. That's J-O-D-A-V-I. Check him out on Facebook, SoundCloud. Go to joedavimusic.bandcamp.com. Buy his entire discography. It'll cost you like $15. Be sure to do that. Thank you, Mr. Joe Davi. I'd like to thank Kroger for this delicious purified drinking water that I drink on not every, but most episodes of My Fellow Americans. Bulavanaka. Shout out to Daron Turks' mom and him. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> Guys, before I introduce my guest tonight, I'd like to take a moment to, to promote the Libertarian Dad Bod Calendar for 2020, which is brought to you by the South Carolina Libertarian Party. The proceeds from this calendar will go to help the South Carolina Libertarian Party as well as many Libertarian candidates. And what's more, your very own Spike Cohen will be your Mr. April 
on this year's calendar, or actually next year's calendar. Uh, I'm not a member of the Libertarian Party. I'm not a dad. But America, the world really, needs this body for your fridge or wherever you put calendars. Um, So be sure to get yours today by going to libertariandadbod.com. So without further ado, guys, my guest tonight has had quite the career in an incredibly short period of time. He was the managing editor of uh, Liberty Hangout and the campus coordinator for Students for Rand Paul. He's worked on multiple campaigns, including the Savannah Maddox for a State House campaign. He's currently the vice president of the Liberty Institute of Freedom and Economics. He's a contributor for the Advocates for Self-Government. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the show, Mr. TJ Roberts. TJ, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Thanks for having me on, Spike. Yeah, I'm really excited to have you on. It's great having you on. If the response that I got from my announcement that you were coming on the show is any indication, we are both in for a hell of a ride. So I look forward to it. All right, well, let's get going then. Yeah, so guys, uh, be sure to comment with your thoughts and questions, and TJ and I will let you know if you are right or wrong. Now, TJ, this is your first time on the show, and uh, anytime I have a, a guest on for the first time, uh, I always ask as my first question, what brought you to libertarianism? Uh, would you say it was like an aha moment or kind of a gradual evolution? Tell, tell us about that. I think that libertarianism for me was largely a lifetime thing for me. Okay. And not saying this in a way of saying like, oh, I was awakened from this. I, it took time to develop the ideas naturally. But when I was six years old, my father died of a methamphetamine overdose. Oh, wow. And this was largely the result of a criminal justice system that had failed him early on in life. Right. And seeing that, you see this inextricable link to the state ruining the life of someone who has now left multiple children, an ex-wife, a current wife, and parents just behind because of this. Right, and right, it right. really did destroy his life, and we still see repercussions of it to this day. Right, of course. So, entire life, I've had this skepticism of government, and just as time went on, I just ran out of excuses. I'm like, all right, yep, screw it. I'm going full on into this whole libertarianism thing of just, Let's reject the government. Let's get the violence out of the system. Let's put peace. So let's put peace over politics. Right. Yeah, I can imagine. That's absolutely terrible. I, 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 I first of all, I had no idea, but I, I can't even, I, I can't even imagine. Do you, are you comfortable talking about some of the steps that led to that ultimate tragedy happening? Like how, how the government actually, you know, led to those types of sure. things? Um, so the first one was, uh, I don't know the full details because I was really young when this happened. But right. like initially, I, um, he was arrested for simple possession of marijuana. You know, something that's not even chemically addictive. Right, right, right. Um, spends a little bit of time in jail, and of course, as time goes on, he winds up getting into harder stuff. Yeah. Well, once you've been in prison for having something you're not allowed to have, yeah, you become scared to go and seek help. Right. This leads to his marriage with my mother breaking down. And that ends whenever I was around two or three years old. He gets deeper and deeper into addiction. This was when the war on drugs was really at its peak in the 21st century. And 
I mean, he wouldn't, he, he definitely wouldn't go out for help. And one day he just took way too much and it killed him. So that's the whole thing is like, it just shows you how interventionism stops people from pursuing what would that be their best interest. Like if you are an addict, it's in your best interest to get help. Right. But if you're risking jail time by doing that, yeah. I don't blame you for not seeking help. I can't. I can't ethically see myself saying, well, it's your fault you didn't get help at that point. Right, right, right. Well, and especially when, if you've already been locked up, you've already been in that cage, you don't want to go back. I mean, there there are very few people that are built for that type of thing. And so when you think, okay, I can deal with this addiction, which is you know a, a terrible thing to have to deal with, or I can get caged for it. I, I mean, oh man, that is absolutely terrible. And 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 to think it all started over something that is not addictive, is milder than alcohol, is has medicinal use. I mean, it's like a, a what a, it's like arresting someone over coffee or something like that. That's absolutely terrible, man. I can I can only imagine how how that must have been. Um man. Uh I don't even know how to segue from that. I'm so sorry. I'm very sorry. Oh, oh, don't be sorry. I'm I'm a stronger person because of it. I understand. I understand, and that's but and 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 I mean, it's helped you to to you know get into your your ultimate activism that you're doing today. My first exposure to you was when you were working as a managing editor for Liberty Hangout. Um, sadly, after your departure, in my opinion, anyway, they seem to have gone in the same direction that Stefan Molyneux has gone, which seems to be kind of appealing to conservatives and boomers for fame and fortune. Um, looking back on your time there, what are your thoughts of Liberty Hangout? Your time there, what led to you leaving and so forth? Um, the people there are absolutely amazing, honestly. And um, one thing is, is that talking about appealing to conservatives and appealing to boomers, they are more of a of marketing to conservatives but you can see that they've been drawing back on that recently, um, especially with Donald Trump's new calls for gun laws. In fact, um, Caitlin Bennett, their real spokesperson, has right, been right. actively losing donors today, especially because she came out against Donald Trump's debt forgiveness for disabled veterans. This oh, is wow. something that is a very clear socialist policy. If Elizabeth Warren or Barack Obama did this, conservatives would be out on the streets ready to riot. Right. But because it's Donald Trump doing that, they're they're totally okay with that. Well, Liberty Hangout has been actively opposed to this. They are also opposed to red flag gun laws. So they have their good things. They have their bad things. All in all, I'd see them as a force for good especially now that they're really coming back and saying, you know what? No, this whole thing where you guys are accepting gun control and accepting war whenever it's Donald Trump doing it, that's not okay. And I'm, I'm really happy that they're doing that, especially now. Um, the thing that got me to leave was actually starting up the Liberty Institute for Freedom and Economics or life for short for the right. rest of this episode. I'm just going to refer to it as life. Yeah. Just call it life. Um, yeah. <laughs> it was, it was something that uh, I've just felt had, so much potential and just wanted to really put as much time into it as possible. Right. And I really couldn't juggle being the, being as high up in two organizations at the same time while also working on campaigns and also getting ready for my junior year of college. So it was just something that it was more of a time management thing. Something had to go. Yeah. I, I this right. thing with, with the gun control, 
I'm I'm glad to hear, first of all, that that Liberty Hangout isn't going down that same route as many conservatives who are finding any possible way they can to either justify or rationalize red flag laws, which in my mind, I mean, it's bad enough to say, okay, this gun is banned. You can't buy it anymore or whatever. It's an entirely different thing to say. Any person who doesn't like you can call the police they can get this warrant that's like the easiest thing to get without even telling you that they're getting it and then go you know so you can't try to represent yourself and they can come to your house and tell you you have to give up all of your guns including a revolver or whatever i mean you know it's not you know just your assault weapon it's any kind of weapon at all they could take your knives if they wanted to and you can't resist that. And I mean, we've already seen deaths from that in Maryland. I forget the man's name. We've seen, I mean, over 10 deaths from this already just in state. A federal red flag law is worse than anything we ever heard from from the Obama administration, the Clinton administration, or really any other administration. And to watch conservatives defend that, although today conservatives are defending, you know, Donald Trump saying that, uh, Jews have to vote for him or else they're being disloyal to a, a foreign nation that was founded by Marxists. But, I, I mean, what do you think about this, that that so many people that have been supposedly fighting along with us, you know, for our Second Amendment rights are just caving because it's a Republican that, you know, happens to be doing it? Oh, they put party over politics, and that's right. one of our biggest problems in America. But it's always important to remember Glenn Burney's name. Um, that's the victim of the yeah. red flag laws in Maryland. It's always important to remember that because, well, I mean, think about it. It was 5 a.m. when the police broke into his home. Yep. If you are coming into my home by force and my family is sleeping there, it's your life or my life because right. at that point I had just woken up. I'm probably groggy. I'm probably confused. Sorry. Don't come in expecting a peaceful resolution to something, especially when you're on someone else's property. I mean, let, let's do this thing. It's I, my God, people red flag laws violate, not just the second amendment. They violate the fourth amendment against unwarranted searches and seizures yeah. violates the fifth amendment to violate your due process violates your right to a speedy trial by jury. It violates your right, your right to be protected from cruel and unusual punishment. As far as I'm concerned, if something is taken from you when no crime has been committed, that's cruel and unusual punishment. It also violates the first amendment because we now see Donald Trump winning Chris Cuomo disarmed for getting upset at a supporter for calling him Fredo. For calling him Fredo in front of his family. Right, 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 right. Yeah. So yeah. I'm so, I, like, was what Chris Cuomo did okay? No, but you know what else isn't okay? Disarming your political rivals. That's yeah. something that you expect out of totalitarian dictatorships. Yep. Yep. So that's six amendments of the Bill of Rights. And the fact that you have Rand Paul out here supporting red flag gun oh, laws Lord. shows exactly how disgraceful it is and why you should never trust a politician. Yeah, we're, I'm going to we're going to talk more about Rand later, trust me. But uh yeah, I think it's I think it's absolutely ridiculous. But I, I want to talk about life. We are going to just call it life. That's way easier than trying to Liberty Institute of Freedom. We're going to call it life. Um so <laughs> you started life last year, the year before? Uh, I started it last year, yes. And you're the vice president. Um of course, this is a very a fascist organization, by the way. Uh, it's so much so that it has libertarian socialists in the leadership team. Um, but uh, tell us about uh, uh, about life. Uh, tell us what it's about and uh, and what y'all are, are doing over there. Sure. So the main objective of life is to give exposure to relatively unknown figures within the liberty movement. Essentially, we want to take 
the ideas of the Mises Institute, people along those lines, the Austro-Libertarian tradition of self-ownership and firm Austrian economics, but also give other people the opportunity to spread these ideas, to so be okay. the second-hand dealer of ideas, as Friedrich Hayek once put it. Right, right, right. So putting this into more of a millennial-slash-generation Z tone, and that's something that we think is really important, is by having that fusion there, you can spread those ideas. Um, we're on a bit of a hiatus right now due to the fact that there's just a lot of us are working full-time jobs right now and simply don't have the time and means to do it. But it has a lot of promise, and there's actually really good scholarship on the site that, um, as like once we get this thing back up, has really quality content. Some of it's uh, republished, uh, thankfully, to the uh, thanks to the fine people at 71republic.com. A couple articles are on the Mises Institute as well right now, which uh, is absolutely wonderful. So. That's uh, that's more or less what the mission of it is, is to promote freedom, particularly to young people and give exposure to relatively unknown folk within the liberty movement who deserve this exposure. That's really cool. That's good. Yeah. I mean, so much of political stuff in general, not just libertarian, but political stuff in general, it's geared towards the people that have traditionally consumed that kind of stuff. You're leaving out a generation that I mean, your age and younger, you were, I'm trying to think, what, you're, you're how old again? You're 20? I'm 21. Okay, you're 21. Um, so you were, I'm trying to do the math, so you were born in 98. So you and anyone younger than you didn't even really experience the last major, you know, like economic boom. Supposedly we've been in an economic boom, but the inflation's been kind of stripping it out for the most part. Yeah. The, your generation and younger people you and at your age and younger have really gotten the worst end of what boomers have created for us in in with this government and to not reach out to them when they're hearing right now they're mostly being marketed to by boomer socialists saying we're going to give you free stuff which is what they told their parents and their grandparents and what got us here in the first place and when you're in the situation that many people your age and younger are in or even older that sounds very appealing. If no one else is marketing to them, you're basically ensuring the worst case scenarios for the state and our society moving forward. So I think it's a it's a really, really good thing that you're doing. Um, I want to, we have to, I have to, I'm going to address the elephant in the room as it were. Uh, the two biggest reasons I brought you on uh, was to uh, talk about how and why we should make politicians afraid, which we'll talk about shortly. Uh, but also the some of the misconceptions in libertarian circles around private property and the concept of physical removal, so to speak. Uh, before we get into the weeds of this, just give me your basic rundown of your thoughts on self-ownership and, and private property. Okay, sure. So you own yourself, and the reason why is because of private property. Ultimately, what determines whether something or not is yours is if you are the first user of something it is yours de facto or if you acquired through voluntary transactions that's the only two ways to do it so you own your body and first and foremost you are the first user of it and second it's impossible to voluntarily give it away you could do that when you're dead but as long as you are alive you cannot to sell yourself is to commit an act of fraud but it goes even deeper than that to 
deny self-ownership in itself is an assertion of self-ownership. So with that in mind, you can see that self-ownership is inherently an a prioristic truth. To argue against it is to prove it correct, essentially. Right, because you couldn't, so, you couldn't argue... You couldn't argue in the first place if you weren't asserting your ability to make that assertion in the first place. Right. So right. take the take the assertion, I do not own myself. I do not own myself is a claim that is made by a self-owning agent. So you are utilizing self-ownership to deny it, and therefore you're proving that any denial thereof is inherently contradictory. Right. So that so that's the that's my foundation for private property rights. Of course, this whole thing gets into the human nature. I mean, but this is something that we just see of this is self-evident. The origin here when talking about political philosophy doesn't matter. I believe it comes from God. You don't have to, right. regardless of where it comes from. This is the reality of, of the situation in which we live. So that's the private property. So that leads us to the private property ethic. So this applies to all other items on this planet that are not already owned by someone else. You can appropriate it for yourself, or if it is owned by someone else, you can acquire it through voluntary transactions. So just simple about that. Now, what we're talking about with the whole thing of physical removal, this uh, phrase comes from Hans-Hermann Hoppe's book, Democracy, the God that Failed. It's in his chapter on conservatism and libertarianism. He talks about how while libertarianism is strictly private property rights, there are very clear correlations between cultures and adherence to private property rights than other cultures. And he uses this just to show you that, that typically we'll see more Western-centric groups have a greater sense of private property rights. That's not always the case, but most of the time that's where a lot of it has come from. But let's just taking a step back here is like the particular line that he says, I'm paraphrasing, there can be no tolerance for communists and Democrats. Uh, he's talking about advocates of democracy, not members of the Democratic Party. Republicans, as far as he's concerned, are, right, 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 are well. also Democrats. Right, right. Yeah. In a libertarian social order, they will have to be physically separated from society. So the real phrase isn't actually physical removal. It's physical separation. So... Everyone says, like, oh, there's no difference between this and violence. Well, no, actually, because violence is an action. Physical separation is an adjective. So if you are an anarcho-communist, that is fine. You own yourself. You get to decide your own preferences. Right. What you don't have the right to do is steal from others. But also think about this. If you are an anarcho-communist, why would you want to live in a community that has strict adherence to the capitalist interpretation of private property. Right. You wouldn't. You would live separately from these individuals. So, and think about it, like the example that Hoppe uses, and this is what everyone tries to bash Hoppe on, is he uses an example of a hyper-conservative community that hates gays, loves Christianity, and is all for essentially just straight white Christian ethics. Right. This, by the way, is the opposite of Hoppe's ethical circumstances, by the way. Culturally, he's a cosmopolitan. He's married to a Muslim. He lives in a majority brown uh, country. He lives and in Turkey. He lives he, in Turkey, right? Uh, yeah, he lives in Turkey. Yeah. So a majority he, Muslim brown country, yeah. 
Yeah, and is married to a Muslim. So, right. yeah, that's a real traditional conservative guy right there, I'm sure. Right. Um, right. So that's the big point there, that he's just giving an example of that. Well, let's talk about an example of a community that is all members of the LGBTQ plus community, all people of color. Would they want a white nationalist living in that community? No, obviously. Right. It's it's common sense. So, like, th- that's the whole that's the whole deal. Like, would I attend a Democratic Socialist of America conference? Not unless I was getting paid to cover it as a journalist, which I barely do that anymore. Right. So, I uh, so it's one of those things. that's just it's simple common sense, but people put their feelings over the reality of the situation, and that, so that's really like the general rundown of it. Um, if there's anything I can do to clear it up though further, I'm all ears. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, first of all, I want to go back to, we got a comment back when we were talking about red flag laws uh, from Vincent Picciotti. I think I'm saying that right. He said, I've been labeled level two bipolar and PTSD. I will be banned from gun ownership in Pennsylvania if the Dems and Wolf, who is their governor, uh, pass their gun control legislation. That's a, This is a perfect example of when you criminalize the fact that someone may have for example you know mental illness now you're 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 it's like thought crime from minority reports or it's 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 terrible it's a perfect example of that going stepping back a little on physical removal for those who don't know like you like uh, tj said the term physical removal in the context we're talking about was first coined or at least made popular by hans Hermann hoppe uh, who is a professor of economics at the University of Nevada in Las Vegas, a uh, prominent proponent of Austrian economics and anarcho-capitalist theory. Uh, he talks about how in the absence of a state, private property owners could choose to voluntarily create covenant communities where they could set terms and conditions. I- I'm pretty much just touching on what you just said, where they could set terms and conditions for being a part of that community, and people who refuse to abide by those terms and conditions uh, could be physically removed so to speak, from those communities, uh, meaning that they would be asked to leave, uh, and if they didn't, then they would be removed physically. Here are the two quotes from Hoppe, Hoppe that his critics seize upon. Usually, they don't do the whole quote. They'll take parts that they don't like. Uh, you actually mentioned, I think, at least one of these. Um, I uh, edited these slightly for brevity. They're still very long quotes. You usually only get about 10 words from them. Uh, from someone who's criticizing him. But uh, in this one, he says, in a, these are both from Democracy, the God that Failed, which he wrote in 2001, or published in 2001. Uh, in a covenant among proprietor and community tenants for the purpose of protecting their pro- private property, no such thing as a right to free unlimited speech exists, not even to unlimited speech on one's own tenant property. One may say innumerable things and promote almost any idea under the sun, but naturally, no one is permitted to advocate ideas contrary to the very covenant of preserving and protecting private property, such as democracy and communism. There can be no to- this is the part most people seize upon. There can be no tolerance towards Democrats and communists in a libertarian social order. They will have to be physically separated and removed from society. The second quote, uh, the one that really gets people worked up uh, and is really, <laughs> in my mind, taken out of context. He says, a society in which the right to exclusion is fully restored to owners of private property uh, would be profoundly unegalitarian, intolerant, and discriminatory. There would be little or no tolerance and open-mindedness so clear, so dear to left libertarians. Instead, one would be 
on the right path towards restoring the freedom of association and exclusion implied in the institution of private property. Uh, There would be signs regarding the entrance requirements to the town and once in town requirements for entering specific pieces of property. Here's where you usually get the quote. For example, no beggars, bums, or homeless, but also no homosexuals, drug users, Jews, Muslims, Germans, or Zulus, uh, and those who did not meet these entrance requirements would be kicked out as trespassers. Now, again, Hoppe is German, so he clearly isn't advocating for all communities to not allow Germans because he's German. So he wouldn't be allowed in any community. So I just want to clarify just because yes, he also, I think he was giving, and you can correct me if, if, if I'm wrong, because you're way more well-read on Hoppy than, than I am. And in fact, you've actually met him. Mm -hmm. Talk talk to me about these quotes and the, and the concept of physical removal. Sure. Specifically, Um, like what was he, Oh, no, sorry. You can go no, ahead. No, no. I was just going to say specifically because you you've you've already touched quite a bit on it, but specifically when he's talking about these hypothetical hypothetical examples of like no, he, I don't Zulus. There aren't a lot of Zulus, but no black people or no Hispanics or no whites or whatever. Talk to me about the context of what he's saying. Um. Yeah. The context is that simply put, people have the right to their own personal preferences. You as a libertarian don't have the right to control what people like and what people don't like. What you do have the right to control as a libertarian is when someone is using violence against you. Right. And we're talking about initiatory physical violence. If you break into someone's house and they shoot you, that is not their problem. That's yours. That's one of the just a basic tenet that shouldn't even be discussed. It's a, one of those common sense points. Right. Um, but so the first quotation talking about there be no talks toward this one of the biggest misconceptions about physical removal is that it's an affirmative action that the people will grab their pitchforks and torches and they will go out and they will drag them out on the streets and kick them off that's not what physical removal is it never has been never will be um you can see one in an article from stefan kinsella about clarifications on physical removal in covenant communities He's talking about basic contract theory. Essentially, people who don't meet the contracts wouldn't enter to begin with, essentially. And anyone who wouldn't meet a contract anyway, well, that contract wouldn't be formed in the first place because that person already lives there. Right. So so there's that first point. So it's about voluntarily established standards among people who are currently living there they have every right to do that. Now, one of the objections that people have is like, well, what about people who are born into this and don't meet the objections to this? Right, well, right. It, once again, you look to the libertarian position on immigration, which is that we privatize the land. We allow the property owners to determine who comes on and who leaves. If you invite someone, you are a de facto sponsor of that individual. That's your decision to deal with. Not the decisions of the community, not the decisions of any government, right, in fact. Right. This is the system that gets the government out of everything, quite frankly, because let's be honest here. We're inherently social beings, and if you want proof of that, we're communicating right now. We're speaking in language. Right, right, So right. Indi- indi- individualism is great. Let's just not pretend that that is the end-all, be-all of human existence. There's so much more to humanity. 
onto the second one. So not only would Hoppe not be welcome in a community <laughs> if he was being literal there, but also not only would his wife. Uh, so that's some of the things there to think about on that. So what he's talking right. about there is he's giving an example. The example that he's giving is a highly culturally conservative community that is established at their boundaries of what is allowed, what is not allowed. Right. Do I agree with these standards? Absolutely not. Is it their right to have those standards? Sure. Let's just put it this way. Like if I were to go to a business and this business refuses to hire me because the business owner is a Nazi, I wouldn't want to be working for that business to begin with. I, yes. why, why would I want to subsidize that? Okay. So the um, bigotry or, ethnic purity standards and whatnot it's not a limitation on other people it's a limitation on the person setting the standards right uh that that's the first thing to begin with you have every right to limit yourself what you don't have a right to do is use violence against someone because you hate that feature about them correct and right i'm pretty sure literally anyone who takes the private property ethic as standard would agree with this right but yeah, so that's that's just a rundown of it. Um, yeah. Any other questions about it? Yeah, no. So here's here's my thing with um, here's my example of a covenant community, quote unquote, happening even in the state of society. So my wife and I have a lot of uh, gay and trans friends in this area, which is Myrtle Beach. It's very heavily where the buckle of the Bible Belt. So it's not <laughs> like there are. So if you open a gay club, you got to be careful because they're going to everything from people who are well-meaning, who want to come in and witness, you know, Christianity or, or, or whatever to you all the way to people that want to like, you know, go in and threaten people and say you're all going to hell or whatever and everything in between. Um, and so we actually uh, of one of the, 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 the LGBT clubs here, we're actually lifetime members. Uh, they, they give memberships to people. Uh, which are free, but you have to agree to a bunch of terms. And, and of course, it's, you know, no proselytizing, no bashing gays, no, you know, misgendering people, all these different things. And you agree to these terms. And if you disagree to these terms, or if you if you disagree to these terms, they won't let you in. If you agree to them, and then at some later date, we're welcome there. Be, even though we're straight and cishet and married and, you know, fairly traditional, whatever. We're welcome there. If we went in there and at some point I started saying gay is, you know, bad and you're all going to hell or whatever, they would tell me that I needed to leave. And if I said, no, I refuse to leave. I'm going to sit right here and say all gays are going to hell. They're going to remove me, probably physically, or they're going to call the police or call security or someone's someone's going to make me not be there anymore. Now, if you conflate that out to a post-state society, if you've got, like you said, an LGBTQ community and they go you know what, we're going to let straight people in and visit or whatever, but you have to not break these rules and not, you know, try to harm us and not, you know, say bad things about being gay or whatever. And if someone went in and did that, they'd be violating that right. And I don't think any libertarian would claim that there's something something wrong with that. Now, in your article, uh, Physical Removal is Essential to Liberty, you state, and, and I'm quoting here, at any level from the nation to the community... Here's the big part. To the individual, one has the right to secede and form his or her own form of culture and to exclude all who advocate against one's culture from their property. 
And I take that to mean, for example, if a here here's an example. You you mentioned it, a gay person. So let's say that my father and mother moved into they wouldn't, but let's say they moved into this, uh, you know, uh, um, culturally Christian community that doesn't allow homosexuality or advocacy of homosexuality or whatever. And they've passed away, and I I'm I've now owned this property, but I'm gay, and I. I say, well, okay, I'm gay and I'm not going to pretend I'm not gay. So I want to secede from my property from this community. I'm not going to use your commons. I'm not going to go to your meetings or events or or whatever, but I'm going to remain in my home and freely associate with others outside of the community who wish to do that. Are you saying that that would be okay for me to do that? Yes. Yes, absolutely. The only instance in which that would not be okay is if somehow there is a firm contract that your parents didn't own that house, but rather they leased or they rented it. Right. But other, otherwise, no, absolutely. If you are the firm owner of it, you can null and void the contract there and say, look, I'm not going to take part in your nonsense here. Right. Uh, what you guys are doing here is heinous in my personal ethics. Continue doing it, whatever. I'm not going to stop you. But you're not going to force me to be in that. Absolutely. Right. right. Th- that's the thing is that secession is an individual right. So, yeah, I mean, th- that's the entire point. Like, it's literally one of the most common sense points, but people just get so angry about it because at the very foundation of it is that left libertarians desire openness over actual liberty. Liberty is not necessarily open. It allows people to exclude themselves from any situation that they want. And left libertarians probably wouldn't want this whole dedication to openness if it meant that they had to associate with individuals who hated them for their very existence. But yet openness taken to its logical conclusion would. It would have to, because otherwise you're arbitrarily deciding what you're open to, which is okay if you're doing that for yourself. We all arbitrarily decide who we want to associate with, whether we say it or not. I am arbitrarily, I arbitrarily decided to ask you if you'd like to come on my show. You arbitrarily told me you'd like to. Like it wasn't, we didn't use some systemic ideological belief about association. It was just, would you like to come on? Yeah, sure. Would you like to have me on? Yeah, sure. So I, no, I I agree with that. Now let me ask you. we had to make sure I was oppressed enough. Right. Yeah. What did you, did you meet enough of the intersections of whatever? So, uh, so I want to ask you, is this Hoppy's view as well? Can a, that a property owner can secede themselves and their individual properties from a community if they decide to, because it seems like without that severability or that secession ability, we're eventually going to end up with all of the heart hallmarks of a state at some point. At some people, all of the people that originally agreed to these things will be dead, leaving behind a bunch of people who won't be able to secede from it. So I assume, but you can correct me if I'm wrong, that Hoppe agrees with you on this, that down to the individual, you can secede from, from, from your owned property from the covenant. Yes, absolutely. And it's the whole point of why would a, so that's the thing, like, Physically removed or physically separated, once again, isn't them coming to your home, dragging you out. If you refuse to pay rent, that might happen because right. you voluntarily you agreed voluntarily. to. Yeah. Yeah. That is That was a, your decision. But if we're talking about a difference in cultural preferences and you own that property, no, physically removed in that sense, 
is that your property is no longer a part of that community. That's the difference. So right. whenever whenever some room temperature IQ individual says that this is no different from deportation, well, no, it's no. pretty damn different because yeah. no one's getting violently drug out of their home and separated from their families and put over an arbitrarily drawn border. So it's very different, in fact. Yeah, no, it's it's completely different. Now, again, there could be like in my like my example with the LGBT club, I could be physically removed, so to speak, from the from the property if I'm refusing because it's not my property. And in that example, I don't even I don't even own it in common. I'm literally just a guest. In an example where if I were where I'm the gay guy with my you know my the house that I've uh, inherited, I can voluntarily secede. If I then say, well, I'm still going to go to community meetings and advocate for acceptance of homosexuality and so forth, that's a problem because I'm no longer in my property. I'm in a property of people who have specifically said that is their preference to not have that. And they don't have to accept that any more than if I were to create a community of only LGBT Jewish people who whatever I can say, I only want, we only want people in here who are gay and whose first name starts with an S and, and, you know, and, and only that if you, if you're, if you don't meet those terms, then we want you, we don't want you here and we don't have to have a good reason for that. The only reason is we own ourselves, we own our property and we don't want whatever we don't want. And we do want whatever we, we do want. Now, speaking of your article, um, which by the way, it's great. It's in the show notes. I encourage you guys to read this. I hope that this has helped deal with some of these misconceptions and, and outright falsehoods re- regarding physical removal. But, but speaking of your, of your article, you chose to use this photo of, uh, uh Augusto Pinochet alongside a helicopter as the picture <laughs> for your article. And this was written, uh, November of 2017. For those who don't know, uh, Pinochet was a military dictator in Chile who uh, he uh, he uh, o- overtook the communist government in a in a in a, a coup d'état. Uh, he was a military dictator. He often threw his political opponents from helicopters, most of whom were socialist and, and communist. Uh, ironically, he also implemented a lot of oddly free market uh, economic reforms that Chile benefits from to this day. But he was also a brutal tyrant. We're not making excuses for that. Some people seem to be more upset. They didn't get past the picture. They were more upset about him being the photo that you chose for your article than about the actual article itself, which many of them didn't actually read, which was evidenced by my communicating with them about it. Um, I'm curious. Did you put up that photo of Pinochet solely to trigger people and get more exposure? Or did you support Pinochet at that time? Like, what was your, your reasoning behind that? So I've never, I, I've never been much of a fan of Pinochet. I've actually studied military dictatorship in South America. He was a bad guy, obviously, but there's a double meaning to it. So this article was published after I had gone to the Mises Institute's 35th anniversary event. At that event, um, troll-in-chief Michael Malice gifted Hans Hermann Hoppe with a toy helicopter. Toy helicopter, yeah, yeah. And me and a bunch of my friends, we got with Dr. Hoppe, and we got a picture with him holding this helicopter, yep. and left libertarians lost their damn minds. It was incredible. So I was like, you know what? Screw it. These people are beyond reason. So I'm going to put up this thumbnail that is perhaps the most absurdly hilarious in a dark sense. It was very darkly hilarious, yes. 
Yeah. Right. Just to, just to filter out the weaklings. Cause honestly, for all the people who are more triggered by the thumbnail, well, your tears are delicious and you'll never make a difference. So this was, okay. And I just wanted to clarify that I did not think that you were, I put it this way. If you were a supporter of Pinochet at one time, I, I assume that was in the past, just from what I know about you and your advocacy. Um, but I just wanted to give you a chance to talk about that because we have the link there and I know I'm going to get comments from people and calls from people that are like, uh, this thing has, you know, Pinochet and a, and a helicopter with a, a communist symbol behind it. I'm going to show it one more time. Uh, but yeah, go ahead and check that, that article out. Uh, I'm sure you'll love it. Um, your kids will love it. Um, so I, I so yeah, so I, oh, uh, real quick, we have a couple of comments, um, that I want to go. Uh, uh, we had one person say, uh, TJ holds himself much higher and is much smarter than most his age. Good listen. Um, we got a question from Jason Kingry who asked, uh, is voting violence or can we use the state for good? You got any thoughts on that? Um, Habayama's dual state. Um, that's Latin by the way, for why don't we have both? Um, because voting is violence. It's choosing leaders for other people, right? essentially. And you're, what, the, what your decision winds up being as the voter, if you're in the majority, that's the decision everyone has to live with. Right. Well, yeah. unless you're talking about electoral college, but, you know, among the voting majority. Your, your, vote is, it, your, your vote is influencing who ends up becoming the leader, right? Right. But let's also be very clear here that not all violence is unacceptable. Once again, if someone breaks into your house and you shoot them, well, that's acceptable. Yep. That's that's self-defense. You can easily vote in self-defense, and I have done that, and I will continue to do right. that. Right. There are fantastic candidates within my district. I live in Thomas Massey's con- congressional district. Um, Rand Paul is pretty good i won't vote for him if he decides to follow through on this whole red flag thing oh my but Lord. um the, uh, savannah maddox she is incredible uh young americans for liberty now has 39 elected state representatives that are making a difference fighting for the basic liberties that we are guaranteed as americans in this uh, in the in this country I mean, we are seeing great change coming out of this system. So you can use the state for good. But yes, voting is violence, but self-defense is essential. The rules kind of go out the door whenever you realize that this is a war. Right, right. Yeah, no, I agree. Voting is violence, so use it defensively. If you're going to use it. If you you decide you want to use your vote, your proxy violence vote, then do so defensively. Um, Let's see what else we have here. Um uh, uh uh so part of the problem is like I'll I'll miss comments because for some reason with live stream I don't get all the comments but um but here's one question uh can't you expand actually there's two questions here Jacob LaBelle asks uh, are there uh and there are association owned common areas that are the only access to the private property yes that that's correct J- Jacob you we're so in a in a post state society you would have in many cases you'd have these voluntary communities and similar to like with an HOA they may say hey let's have a common pool or let's have a common 
I don't know, theater or let's have a, you know, a shopping area that's for us and for guests that want to come in and shop and that can help raise revenue to help pay for our common pro And everyone's, all of the private property owners are agreeing to sublet or delegate their property into common ownership. Um, that's, you know, run by some, you know, council or, or group or whatever that they set up, but it's all voluntary. Everyone has to agree to it, to this to have happened in the first place. And if at some person, some, if at some point someone doesn't agree, they can secede their property from that. Um, Vincent Picciotti says, uh, can't you expand this idea to other sovereign states, meaning the reciprocity of borders in general? Uh, because I may have misunderstood the argument, but it seems like the argument is borders are not real. That the problem with the state, Vincent, is that we never consented. I, I'll let you, TJ, expand on that more on, on the difference between a, a a private border and state borders. Yeah, I mean, a state border is formed and initiated by a monopoly on the use of violence. Now, right. even at the state level, just to be clear, I am not an advocate of open borders, but. What I'm an advocate of is getting the government out of immigration so long as the state border has to exist. I'm actually in favor right now of creating more state borders, as in I want to see mass secession efforts. I would love to see um, the U.S. turn into 50 separate states where they can make their own rules. I would love that. Uh, It would be way better than what we have right now. Am I saying it's perfect? No, but it's a step up. It's an absolute step up from the absolute shit show we are currently in, in which 300 some million Americans have to live under the same set of rules. System's not working. It's failing. Um, regarding private borders, Jeff Deist actually puts it really well. Um, I'm quoting him here. In a libertarian society, there is no common or public space. There are property lines, not borders. When it comes to real property and physical movement across such real property, there are owners guests, licensees, business invitees, and trespassers, not legal and illegal immigrants. So that's the ideal situation. Let's make sure we have that. But we can see something similar to that in the here and now if we go to more of an if we go closer to an invitation based system. Now everyone says like, well this is just some fascist restriction on immigration it absolutely isn't if you if there's unclaimed land sure go to it and make it your own right because right, right, there's right. you don't need an invite there but i've never heard a fascist endorse chain migration which is exactly <laughs> that's, what that's what an invitation based system, system yeah. would ha- would be right if you yep, wind up right. here you're probably going to invite people that you want to be a part of your family over there as well. That's right. That's chain. That's chain migration. Right. So it, it's one of those things that interestingly enough, it makes everyone mad at the same time. And that's probably the why I support it, but who knows? I just have a, I just have a problem with agreeableness. Right. Find something that people dislike and then come up with your rationale after the fact to why it's good but no i mean the reason it the reason both sides are upset about it is because it removes government control so one side wants government telling people they can't come and the other side wants government essentially inviting for lack of a better word the entire world to come and saying we'll even rob these people that are already here and give some of it to you and also telling all these people and you have to associate with them you can't choose to to you know, secede or dissociate from these people because you don't you don't want to associate with them. So you've got both sides that want control. Whereas you're saying, let's have a system where if someone is welcome, welcomed by someone who's willing to invite them, vouch for them, 
take care of take care of them if need be, make sure that they you know get work or you know that their needs are met, whatever. Great, come on over. Um, like you said, that's chain migration, which uh, doesn't really make anyone happy, but uh, makes us happy. But um, so okay, so I have speaking of, I have no segue for this. Hey guys, are you thinking of making a podcast? Well, if you are, then Anchor is the easiest way to make a podcast. Anchor gives you everything you need in one place. For free, which you can use right from your phone or computer. Why, Acre even has creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast so it sounds great. Uh, they'll distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard everywhere. Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and many more. You can easily make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. I said that correctly. No minimum listenership. You can start making money with your podcast. So if you're thinking of making a podcast, be sure to download the Anchor app. Or go to anchor.fm to get started and let us know and we will follow you unless you're like Nazis or, you know, some terrible like, you know, like puppy torture or something like that. We won't follow you. But if you're like a a reasonable thing, we'll follow you. You can follow us. Uh, We'll do that. So now that that plug is done, now for one of my favorite subjects, uh, which is, of course, making politicians really scared and afraid. Uh, A subject here to you as well. Um, first of all, before we get into this, how betrayed, and we touched, touched on this briefly, how betrayed do you feel by Rand Paul right now? I put, if I did my math correctly, I put thousands of hours helping Rand Paul in the 2015 through 2016 elections, both for president and for Senate. I did this because he promised liberty. He promised to stand up for your rights unconditionally. That was a lie. That was a lie. Hands down. I have never felt more burned in in my time in politics. This is something that I take personally because I know the people that that surrounded him. We're talking about these guys are the ones who brought him in here. Donald Trump did nothing for him to get him where he is right now. And yet he is bending the knee to him over the people that actually put him where he is right now. Right. It is the ultimate betrayal. And it's one of those things like I can look past voting for people, voting to confirm people like Sessions or Pompeo. I can look past that. Did I like it? No, but I can look past that. But whenever you're talking about uh, an initiative that violates more than half of the Bill of Rights, I'm not looking past that. Right. And it's one of those points that just – it makes it to where you take those hours that you had and you believe and you learn that that was a waste of time. Yep. So, but it also, it's also a hard lesson here because it shows that Rand Paul does not fear the Liberty people who got him where he is right now. And quite frankly, um, one of the most important lessons you can learn, and this is from Mike Rothfeld. If you are not politically feared, you will not be politically respected. And that's a that's that's pretty much it. That's the problem is that right now politicians largely fear boomers and I mean maybe in specific oh, I mean specifically Oh, they don't fear boomers. No. No, nah, no, they don't fear boomers. It's just that boomers tacitly support the socialist policies that the politicians want because those policies inherently grow their power. So it's, it's not so much a matter of fear because if it, if it was a matter of fear, you would see the Democrats also calling for football players to stop kneeling. 
but you don't really see that. Fair enough. Uh, yeah. You, you, so it, it's one of those whole things. Like they don't necessarily fear them. It's just that they have they have conjoined interests essentially. Fair enough. I, I would say there is a level of fear when it comes to things like Social Security and Medicare. But yes, overall, they're not like, you know, what if what if a boomer disagrees with me on the specific things? But there are the so-called third rails where it's like you will lose 60% of the vote, 70% of the vote if you advocate for even touching Medicare in any substantial way to to try to bend that cost curve at all and, and turn it into something that doesn't bankrupt our, our kids and grandkids. But to be fair, and, and at least hopefully this makes you feel a little bit better, Rand Paul obviously is not the only person that's folding on gun control and, and due process in general. You've got Dan Crenshaw. It sounds like Ted Cruz may be even uh, 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 folding on it. Donald Trump, honestly, I, I don't know about you. I never expected him not to fold. That this He's been talking about gun control since he was a Democrat, you know six years ago i mean it, it, it he's been talking about this for quite some time i always thought this is what would happen after a tragedy um but you're seeing so-called pro second amendment you know republicans and other politicians who are just folding on it now to that end let's talk about your work in direct activism not just in working with campaigns but more importantly in holding them accountable once they're actually in office we like you just said we can work really hard to get politicians elected to office and if once they get in there, they go, yeah, thanks a lot. I'm going to do whatever the hell I want. Then you just wasted a bunch of time. So in my mind, it's even more important that no matter who won, that you make them afraid to go against your your policy proposals, which in your case is, is maximizing individual liberty. Now, talk to me about the ways that you make politicians scared to cross you and largely and their constituents. Sure. Um, one of the things to consider is that politics is war and it's most passive aggressive sorry you're not going to you're not going to sit down with a politician and have coffee and change their mind about policies that's really cute it's adorable but the fact that that politician is sitting down having coffee with you shows that they're not afraid of you simple reality of it i don't mean to get all ineffectual with you but yeah, you're not special enough to where having coffee with a politician will get you to get them to change their mind. What will change their mind, however, is going to their FEC webpage, finding their donors, and then finding their and their their campaign managers' neighborhoods, and then putting flyers in those neighborhoods, informing them that this guy is about to vote against your Second Amendment rights. Right. That's one way to do it. Because then they're like, oh, God, they firebombed this entire neighborhood. They must have done the entire district. It scares the hell out of them, Um, especially whenever those guys call in and start being like, what is this I hear about you trying to vote uh, vote against constitutional carry? Politicians respond to two things. It's pleasure and pain, one of the two. So the pleasure would be like endorsements, public praise, donations, things like that. the pain can be flyer bombs, public condemnation, public shaming. The biggest one is a primary opponent. If you can get a solid primary opponent, even if you lose, you're sending a message that you don't care about the party line here. You care about the policy line. And you have to draw those lines in the sand very, very carefully. Um, so that's the big thing with it is just show, like, ultimately, you don't care. I mean, one example of this is, like, I'm not going to name names on this right, because right, this right, one went course. really well. Okay. Um, Kentucky now is a constitutional carry state. Right. You can carry a concealed firearm without a permit. 
one state representative who was the vice chair of the Judiciary Committee chose not to respond. If you want to backtrack this stuff, go to my personal Facebook. You'll find the post in which I did something about this. I emailed him and asked him where he stood on this bill. About three days passed, no response. I followed up, two days passed. So I posted on Facebook saying, I'm not sure why this guy hasn't come out for constitutional carry yet. I certainly hope that he's not faltering on our Second Amendment rights. He's a freshman uh, congressman, so I'm I'm a freshman state representative, so you shouldn't have much faith in him. All hell broke loose. Right, and I remember that. All hell broke loose. Yeah, well, he eventually, like, comments saying, like, well, these uh, something like, well, commenting on Facebook here and getting all these emails isn't going to change my mind. And then he's like, I'm concerned about this because multiple law enforcement officers have told me that they don't like this bill. And whenever a politician says law enforcement officers have told me they don't like this bill, right. what they're really saying is that police unions don't like this bill. Correct. That's what they're saying. Yep. Um, we found our target and we... I mean, just straight up, we we made it to where he was afraid to vote against the bill, and so he voted for it. I mean, that's just the reality of the situation, and we needed that vote. We got the vote, and now it's law. You do not need to pay a fine or go through an extensively uh, gated territory of, of trainings and paperwork in order to carry a concealed firearm in the state of Kentucky. That's right, a win right, for liberty, right. especially for people who need to d- be able to defend themselves the most. That's yeah. the simple reality of it. So that's just one example of it, where essentially if, what it is is that you realize that politics is nothing more than the adjudication of power. So that means you have to leverage the power you have against others. And ultimately, you do have way more power than you think you do, I promise. Yeah, It's just I how mean, you use it. Right. And so for those who might be bristling at hearing about this, because I've heard, I've seen people are like, well, you know, we don't have to be un- uncivil. First of all, let's put aside for a moment. We'll, we'll talk about in a moment the history of civility with politicians in this country. Um, but uh, let's talk. OK, so there are people that get upset at the idea of, for example, like you said, flyer bombing or directly confronting people, not threatening them or trying to harm them or anything like that, but directly, you know, getting in front of them and saying, like, we're going to ruin your career. And, you know, how would such and such think about you, you know, you not you voting against this and, like, making it personal? That seems really, you know, people go, oh, that's rude. You don't have to do it. There are other ways to do it. There are other ways to do it. And sometimes they might be effective. If those things aren't effective... The alternative is staying civil, super nice and civil, and having this person vote against your interests, and now the police can end up killing you over it, or arresting you over it, or killing or arresting someone you care about, or killing and arresting a bunch of people you don't even know. But, you know, harming people because we said, well, I voted, and I did my best, and I don't want to be mean about it. Now, I'm a pretty agreeable and nice guy. I totally, I don't see the argument for being nice to someone who is about to vote your rights and and, and by voting your rights away, also voting your safety away in the process. Now, did, I want to ask you this. Did you, when you start, have did, when you first went into this, were you just like, yeah, hell yeah, I'm going to destroy these people? Or was there a little bit of resistance at first and it took a while to get used to it? Like, how, how did that work? 
politicians killed my dad. They're not people. Yeah. Um, I, I have no respect for them. One, uh, one rule, um, one rule that I've uh, I've come to follow is if I cannot say something mean about a politician, I'm not going to say anything about them. Um, so that's just a rule about it. And I was I was all about this, especially in 2016. 2016, I saw a speech from Mike Rothfeld, who's the founder of the Foundation for Applied Conservative Leadership, just opened my eyes to this. It was amazing. I mean, just really changed the way that I looked at things and just really made me like think, yeah, it's about time we actually started taking this seriously because right now being nice to these people, it never has worked. It never will work. And quite frankly, it sets us down a dangerous road because you should be thankful regardless of how unfree we are in America, which granted we are unfree, right? You should still be thankful to live in this country because in quite literally every other country, every government decision is made at the barrel of a gun or the edge of a machete. And it's quite and it's quite often directly at the barrel of a gun or the edge of a machete. Right. There's no proxy. At, yep. least, with, at least with us, there is a proxy to it. Right now, politicians aren't afraid of anything. And when a politician isn't afraid of anything, they move inch toward dictatorship. And whenever you wind up with a dictatorship, the politician doesn't fear for their job. They fear for their life because ultimately the people will wind up just being complacent as they can be until they snap. Yeah. With this, with this model, they're fearing for their jobs. I'd much rather see people lose their jobs than lose their lives because the blood, the, the, the blood loss would be horrible. Yeah, this is like this is the only peaceful solution is to get confrontational with them. Show them that you are also a person with power who can make change. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Talking about so and you started to touch on this. Let's talk about the alternative to this peace, largely peaceful, not necessarily nice, but peaceful alternative. Let's talk about the other thing that could happen. So, again, we were talking about before. The history of this country was founded on a bunch of people who basically shot at and killed lots of law enforcement agents and said, no, we're not going to do it this way. We're going to do it our, our way. They set in place the Articles of Confederation, which was an actual attempt to limit government in quite an impressive way, actually. And then you had people who usurped it illegally, not that it matters anymore because the Articles of Confederation are now null and void and no one's there to enforce it, but they basically came in and said, no, we need more central control, we need to be able to tax, we need to be able to have a standing army, we need to be able to blah, 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 blah. The people who resisted that were nice about it. They maybe said some mean things, but they were nice about it. And as a result, the Articles of Confederation were replaced with a document that ultimately led to what we have now. And like Lysander Spooner said, whether it happened because the Constitution wanted it to happen or intended for it to happen, or whether it happened because the Constitution was powerless to stop it, it happened, and it's the ultimately the fault of the people that set that in place. So the alternative to what, what TJ and I are talking about basically being mean to politicians that are trying to have you potentially killed for exercising your rights. The alternative to that is an armed revolt. And there is no movie or anything I can think of that can adequately describe what an armed revolt in the U.S. would look like. Private gun owners 
make up a effectively standing army that is lar- considerably larger, I think many times larger than all other standing armies, including the U.S. Army, combined. No, they don't have tanks and uh, Apaches and whatever else. The Taliban and the Viet Cong prove you don't need that. You need the home advantage and you need the ability to shoot people. And private gun owners, U.S. private gun owners, have both of those things in spades. The If there were a second violent U.S. revolution, it would be both the quickest and most brutal in terms of loss of life revolt in history. It would be maybe a few hours to a few days and and countless millions of people would die as a result. Or we can be mean to politicians and make them fear to lose their job. To me, this is easily the most compassionate thing that someone could do to try to prevent that from happening while we also don't ultimately become you know slaves to uh, an ever-increasing government is that pretty much your take on it as well oh absolutely i mean you, you hit the nail on the head there because i'm not exaggerating whenever i say government decisions are done at the barrel of a gun or the edge of a machete yeah. there is inherent violence when you're talking about politics because it is the adjudication of power if we know anything from history, it's that power corrupts. Yep. So that's the simple reality of this situation here. These guys are playing dirty. There's no reason that you need to be playing nice with them. If you put yourself on an unequal footing with them, they're going to take advantage of that. It's not going to help you out. So it's, uh-huh. it's one of those things you may as well take this as far as you can because simply put – it is the way to secure liberty while also making sure you are keeping the peace with, with individuals because that's the point. I would much rather run these people out of office than see some idiot go in and try to do actual violence against against elected officials. I would much rather see peace than that. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I don't want to see... Because we've talked on this show about direct action and when it is, you know, morally acceptable to use violence against the state and so forth. I don't. First of all, violence against the state isn't always almost never advisable, even if it's morally acceptable. It's almost never advisable. Um, but also, I don't want to see people die. I'd rather see people. If there could have been, because people go, "What about the Holocaust?" If there could have been a, a situation in which the Nazis said, "Wait a second, Let's not kill these people. This is wrong. Let's stop doing this. Let's sue for peace and let's try to make things work. That would have been a far better, uh, 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 not that that was a realistic scenario, but if somehow that could have happened, that would have been a far preferable scenario to the bombing of Dresden and the Holocaust and the, the nuking of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. All, you know, all of the things that ended up happening, if instead people had stepped back, de-escalated and said, hey, you know what, let's not continue doing this. We started this. Let's not start doing this. If we could somehow, maybe it won't work, but if we, if there's any chance of this system actually lead, someone said, can we use the, our vote against, you know, to, to use the state or our, our vote for good. If there's any chance of that happening, it's by doing what TJ is talking about. Just not being nice to politicians that are trying to harm you. Um, so TJ, I just want to get your take before I move on to the, the follower questions. I just want to get your take real quick on where the left and and right get it wrong. Uh, left and right of the authoritarian spectrum. So you've got, in my mind, you have the left who recognize the individual victims of the state. 
they recognize systemic racism. They recognize a lot of these things. But when it comes to saying, okay, but it's the state that causes this, maybe we should get rid of or at least drastically reduce the, reduce the size and power of the state, there's a disconnect where they say, no, 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 that, that's definitely not going to work. People on the right, and I'm speaking generally by and large, people on the right, they recognize that the state is often the problem. Not, not necessarily always, but often the problem. But then when you'll give them specific examples, systemic racism, uh, uh, you know, people that have been harmed by the police, very often they'll, or, you know, uh, 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 the, the stuff happening on the border with illegal immigration and, and detention centers, foreign wars and things like that, they start coming up with excuses. Well, you know, the cops are just trying to get home. Well, you know, they didn't do it legally and, and all of this stuff. Why do you think there is this kind of common disconnect between people on both sides of the, I guess, authoritarian spectrum? Sure. I mean, that's the thing is like people take from what take from those what they're right about. The left is very accurate in the fact that your identity does play a role in your formation of knowledge. It plays a role in your place in society. But that doesn't mean that we should be looking for oppressed classes because ultimately the logical conclusion of intersectionality is individualism. <laughs> the The right needs to be more they, – they, they're – the problem with the right in terms of the authoritarian right is that they equate um, they, they equate government as an institution of civil society. We should be anti-government, but pro-civil society. Civil society, by the way, I mean family, right. church, community, neighborhoods, things along those lines. Right. The things that bring you with, together with other people. The government isn't something that helps that grow. It's a parasite to all of them, every single one of them. Right. And that's where they get it wrong is that they think that the government's an essential to civil society. And that's what we need to look at. We need to look at how government inherently is oppressive to individuals. But we also need to look at how government is also parasitic to civil society. And that's where you can really see that that fusion of it. Um, a really good book on that is uh, The Quest for Community by Robert Nisbet. I mean, just brilliant scholarship. Um, uh, blew me away the first time I read it. So that's something to, uh, to consider in that. But one thing to look at is a lot of people will say that, oh, they're equally as bad of a threat. And... Frankly, that's nonsense. Okay. The difference between the left and the right is that the right uh, is that the left is not joking. That's the difference between the left and the right. The right says we're going to cut the deficit, we're going to build a wall, we're going to expand. They're joking. They are joking. They're saying what it takes. They're giving as much red meat as they can to their base in order to keep them voting. The left isn't kidding. When they say they want something, they're going to do it. Perhaps the one thing that I've seen the left actually joking about was gun rights. I that's the one thing that I've seen because under Barack Obama, gun rights have uh, gun rights grew. But an example of the right wing joking is that under Donald Trump, your gun rights mean jack shit to him. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, yeah. I mean, obviously the right. We'll say we're going to cut the deficit, and then they're joking. They, they, 
grow the deficit pretty much as fast as the left did. Um, so going on, by the way, I got, I, I want to apologize because I was ta- chastised by one of the commenters, Chris Reynolds, for asking you a ridiculously long question. So I apologize for that. Um, but um, so we got, so oh, a couple, a couple follower questions here. We got, first of all, we got a lot of various versions of why are you a fascist, which we've covered. You're not a fascist. You're the opposite of a fascist. I think anyone who, <laughs> who anyone who, who walks away from this full video still thinking you're a fascist should probably listen a few more times. Um, uh, various versions of why did you block me, which uh, you made it clear in the pre-show. It's because they weren't worth your, worth your time and you feel like talking to them anymore. And it's, you know, freedom of, to dissociate because he wanted to ultimately. Yeah. Uh, Will there? So here was a good question. Will there ever be a point uh, where people who don't advocate big government will use, for example, scientific advancement and social progress as the basis of policy decisions? I'm getting tired of the options of global warming is fake or global warming is real. So everyone's taxes are going up. Um, Can you repeat that question? So what they're asking basically is. It seems like right now on the issue of, for example, global warming or technology and things like that, you've got two competing camps by and large. One is like it d- disacknowledges that there's an issue or that it should even be talked about. And the other side says this is a real issue that should be talked about and we need to grow government to, you know, never ending huge sizes to deal with it. Is there is there a potential do you think there will ever be a point where someone says, okay, X is an issue and we should deal with it. Here's free market solutions to deal with that. Oh God, with global warming, especially uh, free market environmentalism is one of the largest untapped industries in America. Uh, I mean, my God, look at all of these green energy solutions that we have right now. This isn't the result of just government trying to look for alternatives. The things that's actively cleaning up the environment right now hasn't been the regulators. It's been the private market, right. and it's working. It's working right now. You have a lot of alarmists saying that we have 10 years left on this world. Well, they were saying that in the 1980s as yeah, well. I, I, I'm, not yeah. saying that, I, yeah. I'm not saying climate yeah. change is a problem here. It's not a problem. But I'm also going to say that you're blowing out of proportion. Yeah. You're pl- you're overplaying your hand at this point. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, I I agree. The um, first of all, anyone specifically with climate change, anyone who wants to talk about climate change and doesn't immediately start talking about nuclear energy, I immediately don't take them seriously. Either they aren't taking it seriously or they haven't done sufficient research because nuclear energy in and of itself is one of the biggest, the two biggest things that could be done, and these are both potentially free market things, are nuclear energy and planting more trees. And those are not things that require cap and trade or you know banning cow flatulence or banning air travel or any of this nonsense. Most pollution is being done at the at the infrastructural creation of energy level you could reduce that the u.s has reduced uh carbon uh output uh by four hundred eighty thousand. i forget what tons metric tons whatever unit they use whereas most uh uh uh, uh paris climate accord countries have seen an increase china india and russia and brazil have seen massive increases precisely because they are growing exponentially economically People who want to affect change positively should be going to these countries and coming up with profitable ways like nuclear energy, like, uh, you know, tree planting initiatives and things like that to try to 
to address this because if you go to these developing countries and go, we've got a great plan to stop climate change, you're all going to be poor and destitute again. They're going to completely ignore you. So, um, so that's that was a good question. Uh, here, here's another one. Do you support uh, do you support the uh, actions of the government at the U.S. Mexico border? And if so, how can you defend uh, your support of it through a libertarian lens? I don't. Um. That, that that's one of the things that's just that shows you the lack of nuance among individuals. It's like they say, I say, I'm not an open borders guy. Right. And then automatically I support dragging people out of their homes, separating them from families and tossing them over a arbitrarily defined border. I just, I've been condemning that throughout this episode and right, I'm right, not right. blaming whoever asked that question about that. No, I, I will never defend anything like that, in fact, because if you look at it now, ICE raids are targeting workplaces now. So I thought we were going to go off of a merit-based immigration system. Right, exactly. If you have a job, if you're taking care of yourself, as far as I'm concerned, you should be able to stay. Yeah, no, I I agree. And to be fair, the person wrote that before this episode started, so... um... Oh, cool. I, I I like this question. Uh, how do you keep your sanity when uh, shameless neoliberal whores trash your name? <laughs> uh, well, I love being hated. Actually, um, you clearly especially do, especially especially whenever it's among defenders of the regime that has killed millions of people in the last century. I mean, we live in a neoliberal order. I don't see why you're complaining. I, we live in a neoliberal order with a neoconservative foreign policy. There is next to no difference whatsoever. So for the neoliberals, yeah, sure. I mean, yeah, go ahead. Hate me. I love that because it shows that I'm against your violent system and it shows that I'm making steps to go against it. It also shows that, well, you have nothing on me that you can effectively use. So you just partake in name calling. Right. That's fine. Right, right. That's how. So, I, 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 t- I take it as a blessing, actually. And also, I block a lot of them because they're literally not worth my time. Right. It's like which, a short high, and then I'm like, all right, bye. Right, which is that that was the previous question. Um, so here's the last <laughs> question, and then we'll move on to final my fellow Americans. Uh, thank you again for coming on, by the way. This has been everything I hoped it would be, so I appreciate that. Uh, final follower well, question. Uh, who is your pick for president, or do you even have one? Oh, wow. Huh. There's a lot of good picks out there. Um, if Adam Kokesh is the nominee for the Libertarian Party, I'll vote for him. I'll vote for Kim Ruff. Yeah. I'll vote for Mark Sanford as a Republican. I will vote for Justin Amash as an Independent. I will work for Justin Amash as an Independent. Um, that guy, I like him a lot. Um, I know there's some like drama and whatnot, but... For God's sake, that man has a lot going for him, is a fantastic congressman. I mean, Amash, Kokesh, Ruff, Sanford, those are the people that looking at it, I, I don't care much about the presidency because I really can't control it. Um, right. right. I, I care a lot more about local races. I care more about congressional races. I mean, look at Thomas Massey, for example, amazing congressman. Justin Amash, amazing congressman. Eric Brakey, amazing future congressman. Um, Nick Freitas, amazing state delegate and amazing future congressman. 
That, that's what I care about. Savannah Maddox. My God. I want her to run for president at some point. Just, dear Lord, the difference that these state representatives are making right now. Well, I was going to say, Young Americans for Liberty gives me hope. Well, yeah. And, and to, to speak on, to expand on what you just said with local government focusing on that, there are two reasons to focus, three, actually three main reasons to focus mostly on local government. One, you have a much more better chance of actually affecting it because it's much more small and localized and you can really hit targets better. Two, their decisions, usually you're far more likely to be victimized at the local county state level than at the federal level that happens obviously but like you're far more likely to be infringed upon by like your local cop who lives a few miles away from you than you know these you know black helicopter scenarios they happen they definitely happen where the federal government steps in but by and large for every one ruby ridge there are countless numbers of eric garners uh, or, or, yep. or, you know, whatever else. I mean, there, there, there are countless examples of that. So many so that we don't even hear about most of them um, unless we're in that local area. And then the third reason is you can actually make them scared of you. You're not going to make the president scared of you for the most part, unless you're incredibly powerful. But you can make a state de- delegate fear you, uh, like like TJ's done with with various you know state people. Um, so those were the the follower questions. Uh, so before I uh, go on to give you your chance to give your final thoughts, I'm going to do something that we started a few episodes ago called "Final My Fellow Americans." Basically, I'm going to. Uh, put 30 seconds on the clock, which is nowhere near enough time to answer these questions. Uh, but I'm going to uh, I'm gonna put you on the clock, and we're going to ask you some questions. And for this final, uh, my fellow Americans, what we're going to do is I'm going to name some people, and you're going to tell me how many days they could last in your covenant community before they would be physically removed, so to speak. Uh, or I guess if you think they'd make it for the long term, you know, for the, the, the duration, you can tell me that. Um, so I'm going to put, uh, you tell me when you're ready. Ready. Okay, so I'm going to put 30 seconds on the clock. Good luck. Bernie Sanders. Zero. Okay, Ted Cruz. Zero. Cardi B. Who? Uh, She's a rapper. Zero. Okay, Dan Crenshaw. Zero. Miley Cyrus. Zero. Rand Paul. (laughs) Three. Gary Johnson. One. The cop who killed Eric Garner. Who? The cop who killed Eric Garner. Oh, um, zero. Donald Trump. Eh, zero. Beto O'Rourke. Zero. That guy in Canada who sued to make women wax his genitals. Um, negative three. <laughs> Kamala Harris. Negative five. Lindsey Graham. Negative 10. Uh, any random furry? Oh, God. Kill them on sight. Um, <laughs> for legal reasons, that's a joke. Right, right. And then uh, the guy, Jeff, uh, who owns Nukes. Oh, he can stay. Yeah, so for those who don't know, this is a side note. Uh, according to the Federation <laughs> of American Scientists, there are roughly, uh, I think it's 14,000 Nukes uh, or, or yeah, 15,000 nukes, 
uh, that are currently in existence. Uh, the vast, vast, vast majority of them are owned by Russia uh, and the uh, United States, of course, uh, as you know, leftovers from the Cold War. But there are also many owned by France, China, uh, United Kingdom, and so forth. And then there's some less than 10, somewhere between one and nine nukes that are owned by Jeff. <laughs> what the... <laughs> Jeff, if you're watching this, coffee's on me if you're ever in Kentucky, I swear. I mean, you talk about constitutional carry. Jeff's got this constitutional (laughs) carry at its finest. Jeff has possibly up to (laughs) 10 nukes. There are many people I will talk poorly about on my show. Jeff is not one of these people. So, yeah, so go ahead. Uh, who? <laughs> I would believe this if it wasn't CNN. Yeah, but no. Okay, so that was just the infographic I grabbed. I've I have verified your your local Jew has verified this with multiple sources. Jeff owns like probably like seven or eight nukes. He I might don't... have more nukes than North Korea. That's great. He's very. There was a small chance. That Donald Trump has been completely wasting his time in North Korea when Jeff, who <laughs> presumably lives somewhere in the English-speaking world, I don't know if he's in the. I, I would assume a, 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 a private person owning nukes would be in the U.S. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm wrong. But Jeff owns this shit. Jeff has this down. Jeff, if you're watching, I too will give you free coffee. Just. Just be careful, man. Just be careful, Jeff. So that, that man deserves a full salute. Like my <laughs> goodness, salute to Jeff uh, and your and your nukes. We salute you on this episode because we at Money Waters Media we fully support legalizing recreational plutonium, as Jeff has clearly done. Um, so <laughs> TJ, again, thank you so much for coming on. It's been an absolute blast. I, I, we've touched on everything I wanted to touch on. I'm so happy that we got to do this. I definitely want to have you on in the future if, if you're available. Um, I want to give you a chance before I let you go uh, to give any final thoughts you have, anything that you felt like we didn't touch on sufficiently, anything you want to promote that's coming up, anything you want to talk about. You have as much time as you want. TJ, uh, TJ Roberts, the floor is yours. Well, if you are interested in going to Washington, D.C. for on August 24th, there's still like a table of availability for Ron Paul's annual conference. Um, definitely check that event out. It's at the Ron Paul Institute called Breaking Washington's Addiction to War. Um, ultimately, just to reiterate, you have way more power than you think you do especially at the local level. You can make politicians afraid of you. You can make a difference. I promise you that. Find your champions, stay true to them, and just make sure you hold these people accountable. It's it's all I could ever ask for right now because right now that's what's holding the line between peace and violence. Yeah, absolutely. And TJ, thank you again so much. Stick around. I'm going to talk to you during the outro real quick. Uh, guys, thank you again for tuning into my fellow Amer- Oh, let me just make sure I don't miss any like. Jacob said Jeff is literally dead. I don't think I think Jeff is safe, Jacob. I think Jeff I is. Don't... No one's screwing with Jeff. Jeff. I don't see. Yeah, oh, I don't. Yeah, I don't... Absolutely safe. Jeff is fine. I'm worried about everyone else. Jeff himself is fine. 
Um, oh, ooh, um, speaking of talking about uh, elected officials who have a great deal of future in the liberty movement, okay. Stuart Jones. He's a state representative in South Carolina, your state. Oh. Check that man out. I mean, we're talking re- uh, next level liberty. Um, having interacted with him in person and just seen what he has done already, he recently won a special election, already making a difference, though. So expect some good, expect some great things out of him. You said Stuart Jones. Stuart Jones. I'll yes. be sure to. I'll be sure to check him out. Someone else who I think is probably in South Carolina is is Jeff. I I would imagine Jeff's also in South Carolina. I'll have to find. We have to. Find, it's either I, South. It's either South Carolina or, or Florida. Yes. More than likely, yes. Um, uh, but more than likely, he's somewhere in the south, probably. Jeff is probably in the south. Uh, by next episode, I will try to find uh, who, where Jeff is. So, guys, thanks again for tuning in to My Fellow Americans. Be sure to tune in tomorrow night at, I think, 8 uh, for the Writer's Block, where Matt Wright will be interviewing uh, Aaron Nakamoto. Uh, and uh, then be sure to tune in, I believe, on Friday. Uh, we're having an episode of Mr. America, The Bearded Truth with uh, our very own Jason Lyon. Then have a great weekend. Uh, I apologize for the fact that we did not have an episode of my of the the Muddy Waters of Freedom last night. Uh, I had internet issues. Matt was having technical issues. It was just technical issue on top of technical issue. Um, we may I'll talk to Matt. We may do a, a makeup episode on uh, on the, over the weekend. If not, then be sure to tune in next Monday for Mister America: The Bearded Truth with Jacob uh, Lyon, and then tune in uh, next Tuesday night for the Muddy Waters of Freedom, where Matt Wright and I will parse through the week's news with the the cheer and 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 love of a sweet summer boy, and then tune in next Wednesday. Uh, for my fellow Americans, uh, I'm probably just going to be doing an Ask Me Anything episode. I, I didn't book a uh, a guest, and I think I'm just going to keep it simple. I think I'm going to do an Ask Me Anything episode, and I'm probably going to do a little talk about the surprisingly Marxist roots of the Republican Party. So be sure to tune in for that, and because uh, I, I want, I'd like to make my Republican viewers happy by telling them that they've started with Marxists. Um, <laughs> but uh, like to keep show a little love to my my GOP peeps. Um, But guys, thanks again for tuning in so much. Have a great rest of your evening and God bless you.
crimes Put in peace to the minds like mine Sometimes darkness is all I find You know what they say about an eye for an eye In a time with the blind be the blind Who am I to deny I would cry when a loved one dies I recognize that body outside Put the holes in the body that was alive Now they find with chalk outline Find out how but you never know why It ain't even make it to the news that night It ain't even make it to the news that night That's my sister, mother, father, brother, son That's one of mine All these kids, I close my eyes Open up the only fine I'm in line There's a pointless murder happen all the time